I'm Holly Elmore. And I'm Alex Frieder, and this is the Turing Test, season one of the Harvard Defective Altruism student podcast, bringing new perspectives and fresh ideas on how to do the most good for the world. In a Turing test, a computer tries to pass for human. A human judge engages in a natural language conversation with one human and one machine, each emulating human responses. If the judge can't reliably tell the machine from the human, the machine is said to have passed the test. If someone can correctly explain a position but continue to disagree with it, that position is less likely to be correct. And if ability to correctly explain a position leads almost automatically to agreement with it, that position is more likely to be correct. So, Holly, who are we testing today? <laughs> Holly here with a quick editorial note. Apologies for the audio quality. This is the first time that we recorded outside of the studio and we really learned a lot from it. You'll hear our chairs crunching and our feet occasionally tap the table the mic was on. Uh, additionally, this is in Irene's office, which faces a street, so you'll hear, I think, a motorcycle at one point. Uh, one of the many charming things about Irene is her bold fashion sense, which includes a lot of wrist bangles. And you'll hear those tinkering throughout the interview anytime she moves her arms. But uh, instead of being annoyed, try to use that as your cue for when Irene was accentuating uh, her point with a gesticulation. Thanks to Christian Anderhoff for help in reducing the noise, and thanks to listeners for your patience. We've got a lot of interviews, and I learn something about recording and editing quality every time, so hopefully we keep getting better. All right, without further ado, Irene Pepperberg. Today our guest is Irene Pepperberg. She's a research associate and a lecturer in the Harvard Department of Psychology and the author of a scientific memoir, Alex and Me. She studies African grape parrots, and the main focus of her work is to determine their cognitive and communicative abilities and then compare those abilities with those of great apes, marine mammals, and other intelligent beings like young children. <laughs> she is studying the mechanisms of their learning as well as the outcomes. I wanted to ask you some career questions first because yes. you have a very interesting career path. Yes. <laughs> this is one of the things in effective altruism we're interested in helping people to have more effective careers. So I understand you did your all of your training in chemistry. Yes. I got my undergraduate degree at MIT in regular chemistry. Then I got my doctorate here at Harvard in theoretical chemistry, which was basically mathematically modeling chemical reactions and structures. And so how did that lead to, to now? <laughs> there was no direct path. Um, as a child, I had a little budgerigar, a little green parakeet. And that was the only creature I joked that, that communicated with me. I lived above a store. My mother would have been a great person for my generation, but in her generation, you had a kid and you were, you know, fired from work and you're just supposed to stay home. And she did not enjoy motherhood. So, I mean, she took care of all my physical needs, but none of my emotional ones. And my father, he was working full time as a teacher, going to school to get his master's degree and taking care of his Ill ill and elderly mother. So he was rarely there. I mean, he kissed me good morning, and then I wouldn't see him sometimes till the next morning. So I was basically on my own. There were no children to play with. I was, you know, television, you know, was sort of the, the ultimate babysitter, and my little budgie um, to really interact with. So I sort of imprinted on birds a little bit. <laughs> I always had parakeets as a pet from then on, and the later ones actually talked a little bit. I mean, they'd sit there and they talk in context. I mean, I'm not sure they understood what they were saying, but it seemed that way. So fast forward, 
I'm now in graduate school. I'm not liking theoretical chemistry very much, even though I'm good at it, but it's, you know, not really keeping my interest. And the NOVA programs come on, the first year of NOVA, on the, and there's things on the signing chimps, on dolphin work, and on why do birds sing. And all of a sudden I realized I could still be a scientist, and I could study this kind of stuff. Because at MIT there really wasn't any animal behavior when I was there in the 60s. And biology was, you know, slice and dice and all that kind of, you know, stuff. And nobody was thinking about animal language work. And here was all this interesting, interesting stuff. And I knew that birds could talk, at least parrots could talk. And I'm thinking, so why isn't anybody doing this with a bird? And I was like, <laughs> well, why don't I? <laughs> and that it was just an epiphany. And I just decided, okay, that's what I'm going to do. The NOVA program, could you describe what it was? Yeah, there was the first one was on signing apes, signing chimps. And it was a lot about Washoe and about, uh, probably a little bit about Shantek and uh, Penny Patterson's uh, gorilla, Coco, and basically how they were communicating with these non-humans. And it wasn't, they were claiming it was language. There was a big, big argument. Uh, for 10 years about what it was, but it's mm -hmm. two-way communication, okay? It didn't have the complexity of human language, but it was two-way communication. You could ask these animals the same way you asked a young child. What shade? How many are here? Where do you want to go? I mean, basic communication, mm -hmm. which nobody had ever done before. It was, was fascinating. It that nobody noticed uh, that pattern at all? or Well, nobody had thought to use, until the gardeners, nobody thought to use American Sign Language. Mm -hmm. People had tried to get apes in the 50s. People had tried to get apes to talk, and they can't. They don't have either, you know, the neural connections to the vocal tract that would allow this to happen. So these were really bad failures. There was the Kellogg's tried this, the um, Hayes and Nissen tried this, several other people, less famous, tried this. didn't work, but the gardeners watching the old tapes saw that these animals were using very iconic signs. And they had the idea, well, why don't we use American Sign Language? It's a real language. And we could get them to use these symbols. It's a real breakthrough. Change in fields uh, seems rather unusual. Do you have uh, any advice for people who are considering such a major leap from chemistry to parasite? Well, it's better to, you know, I did finish the doctorate in theoretical chemistry. I got the, you know, I was, I was, It was suggested to me that I could do that as a, quote, union card, getting the Ph.D. <laughs> um, it would be much easier to switch before graduate school. Mm. Um, many times the argument was when I was looking for a job, well, you don't have a doctorate in psychology. How do you think you can teach psychology? How do you think you could design experiments? And my argument was, well, I, you know, I've taught myself the field, and I know how to design an experiment. I mean, that's what you do in chemistry. I mean, that kind of training was really solid. didn't matter what field it was in. But I really had to pick up a lot of the background. And it's really hard to do that on your own. The fellow whom I looked at at that time as sort of one of my idols, Peter Marler, he had gotten his under, basically his undergraduate degree in chemistry, and he had been looking into, I think he was actually getting a master's in chemistry, because I know at some point he was taking mud samples in the forest in, in the UK. And he heard the different dialects of these birds. And he thought, wait a minute, this is the same bird singing somewhat different songs. 
what does this mean? And so he switched into animal behavior. So I thought, well, if he could do this, you know, so can <laughs> I. And he got his doctorate. He got his, I think he got a second doctorate. Mm. I think he actually ended up getting a second doctorate. I, you know, at that point, I had spent so many years getting the first doctorate, I wasn't <laughs> that eager to try to get another doctorate. And also, the field was brand new. The Gardner's first papers were published late 69 or so. This was 74 when I started getting interested mm. in it. So the other thing was you could learn everything there was to learn about this field because it was small enough at that point. What I basically tell my students is to experiment with different courses and different ideas when they're in college because that's the easiest time. Take that, you know, distribution course and something really odd that just intrigues you because that might be what changes your interest. It's much harder to do it later on. Mm -hmm. Not impossible, but it's much harder to do it later on. So exploration over exploitation in early stages. I mean, it's it's so much easier to to do these kinds of things in an earlier stage in your career. Mm-hmm. It sounds like you were very much driven by curiosity in your uh, career oh, yes. path. And oh yes. So do you think it, it is the most important thing for uh, research? Would you identify other uh, perseverance mm-hmm. as well? I mean, the curiosity is one thing, but if you don't sit there and really willing to bat your head against a bunch of brick walls and, you know, try to get through it, you're not going to get very far. But yeah, Mm -hmm. curiosity is the initial thing, Mm -hmm. the why questions, Mm -hmm. and why things work this way. And gee, just because people say this is the way it should work, mm, what if it could work this way instead? And maybe this paradigm isn't the only way to look at something. And You have to be open. Is that kind of thinking natural to you, or have you done something to cultivate it? Um, I was just always curious. <laughs> I was always curious, you know, as a child. And I was good at science, and that was why I went into chemistry, because mm. my high school teachers were, wow, you're really good at this stuff, <laughs> and, you know, you should continue on. And they were very encouraging, so that's why I kept going. And initially I was. I was very interested in it, but I... What what happened was, it's it was a matter of timing, too. I mean, here I was, a woman at Harvard in the 70s. There was an amazing amount of sexism for women in science. It's, it's still here, but it's much more subtle now. But it was very open at that point. I was in a, a particularly difficult field for women in yeah. science. And the kinds of calculations I was doing, okay, the computer that was probably twice took up twice the size of this room, probably wasn't as powerful as your, you know, smartphone at this point. So it took me seven years. I don't know, you know, what the equivalent would be, but I'm sure it takes these people maybe a day to do all of the calculations. You know, it took me seven years. You know, it just wasn't much fun typing up punch cards and, you know, and trying to, to do this kind of work. So it was, you know, it wasn't what I expected. I thought of it more as a, oh, sitting at my desk and sort of playing around with some equations and getting these great ideas. And <laughs> so when I actually got into it, it wasn't quite what I expected. Speaking of research process, you, your research requires really long periods of observation and waiting for certain spontaneous rare events. And what do you think about doing that kind of research in a system that's definitely optimized for a different kind of research. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's not it's not all observational. I mean, you design experiments, 
you, you know, like today, we went downstairs. I mean, I went downstairs. I had an hour to work with this one student. And Griffin clearly was not particularly interested in working today. <laughs> um, so we got, like, one really good trial. The other two trials we have to look at on the video. And we're not sure that they're going to, you know, be acceptable trials. Um, but it, it takes a long time in the sense that you have to work with the with the birds and make sure they're paying attention and they're not distracted <laughs> and, and things like that. And it takes, like, Athena's taking her a really long time to, to, to be able to vocalize. I'm not sure. We just have too many different people training her. She's not sure who she should repeat after. You know, the, the problem is is that you have to have a lot of different experiments going on so that the birds, oh, you don't want to do visual search today? Well, maybe you'll do... Exclusion. Okay, so you've got a bunch of different experiments going on, so you're getting some data in something. Usually, right now there's some other reasons, but usually we get out about two papers a year, which is the average for most, for a functional lab. I mean, some labs, of course, do much more, but that's a perfectly acceptable, you know, that and a couple of book chapters and things. But it, it does, it takes a lot of time. And the, initially at the beginning, when the birds are first learning their labels, there's this long period where you know, you're not getting a whole lot of data because they're just learning, they're learning how to talk, you're learning the best ways to get them to do this, things like that. Once they have a good vocabulary, then you can start adapting it. I, I also wanted to ask about their personalities and what that had to do. I mean, it's got to be harder than working with babies. Um. It, it's like the thing with babies is that you get, you know, you get 30 babies, and if 10 of them are fussy, you can yeah. drop them from the study. I've got these birds, and, you know, that's it. And if they're fussy or if they're molting and they don't want to work for <laughs> a week, I mean, I'm stuck. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, that is the hard part. I mean, that's really the hard part. And you mentioned between... Between the parrots, there's differences in just their willingness to work, yeah, or I've heard you say things like yeah, this. Yeah, they, they are. There's personalities. I mean, Alex basically wanted to solve problems. He really mm. was interested in that. He dominated Griffin immensely. Mm. I mean, so we'd, you know, we'd sit there training Griffin, and we'd say, Griffin, you know, what color? And Alex would go, no, tell me what shape. <laughs> and Griffin would literally shrug his little birdie shoulders, look at Alex, look at me, and go, oh, I <laughs> answer. So he's basically become this little little guy who says, okay, tell me what I have to do to get the A. I mean, you've all seen the students like that in your class. They're really smart, but they don't want to solve a problem. They want to, you know, this is what we want you to do. Okay, so you want me to apply this rule to all these different things. Got it. You know, and he <laughs> does it. I mean, he's really good at that, but it's not a matter of, Oh, there's where you're going when I'm going to, you know, jump ahead of you and, and do something, you know, more interesting. And so it's just it sounds not... like you had a lot in common with Alex. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And I think had Griffin not been so dominated by Alex, because he was definitely, you know, doing very well when he had his own space. Um, when we left Arizona, we had to give up the huge lab. And then that's when all three birds were all in the same room and Alex started dominating everybody immensely like that. Do you get a sense of where Alex is on the sort of distribution of uh, cognitive abilities within African gray parrots? He was an only bird for 15 years. Mm. So he had this army of students just working <laughs> with him. You know, It's not like we spent every minute of every day testing him, but we treated him like a toddler. So, you know, we come in and we're feeding him, yeah, you know, his beans, here's your green beans and the corn, the corn is yellow. I mean, the same way you talk to toddlers. Mm -hmm. So he got all this input. And once you have to split it between all these different birds who are at different levels, it 
It's not the same. And as I said, Alex dominated him like crazy. Plus, we also tried out other training techniques with him. So Alex only had our model rival technique, which was two human trainers and one parrot. With Griffin, we tried out audio tapes, which didn't work. We tried out videotapes, which didn't work. We tried out one trainer, which worked not too well. We tried using Alex as a model, which worked okay, but not great. So there were all these different things. So he didn't even get as much training as Alex for that period. And the same is true with Athena. We just don't have the number of people to give her that kind of input. So I was going to ask a question about how um, how you dealt with uh, having to remove lab assistants or have lab assistants recuse themselves that sort of spoiled the parrots. I don't say they spoil the parrots, and I haven't you know, had to fire anybody for that. <laughs> but we don't let the same people train and test. So that's the point. If the bird has learned some kind of cue from the way, you know, you present a toy, then you would test the parrot. So you couldn't give them the same cue. Is yeah. that to remove sort of clever hands in? Yeah. 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 So that's the that's the thing. So it's not it's not a matter of so much spoiling them, but it's a matter of, you know, training the students appropriately so they you know, like make Athena talk clearly and things like that and not let her get away with something, um, and then it's basically making sure that those who train don't test on the same project. So you could be training colors, and he could be training shapes, and then you'd switch on who tests, and things like that. You compare avian cognition a lot to human cognition. What do you think are the most striking differences between parrots and humans in terms of cognitive abilities, and what could we learn from, from parrots? Well, it's really hard to say what the differences are, because, you know, we're... we're we keep testing them on different things. So people would, you know, say, well, they couldn't possibly do this. <laughs> and then we design the experiment, and gee, surprise, surprise, they actually can do this. <laughs> um, Alex had a terrible time with photographs. He couldn't transfer to a photograph. We showed him a photograph of something. He called it four-corner paper, which, you know, wasn't <laughs> entirely wrong. <laughs> um, but we gave we trained Griffin on th- uh, three-dimensional shapes, and then we gave him line drawings of shapes, and he transferred. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's really hard to say, you know, what they can and can't do. We know that on various tasks... They And some tasks, they're at the level of a three-year-old child, and some tasks, they're at the level of a six-year-old child. Um, some tasks, they're in between. So it just depends on what we're doing and what we're testing. Um, in terms of language abilities, there's a huge difference. So in that way, we can, can talk about the differences. I mean, no matter how much training Alex would have had, there's no way he could have had an interview like this. I mean, just can't. I mean, it's not to say that they he couldn't have learned more about more linguistic type structure over the course of his life and lived longer, but it still wouldn't be a full language. Mm-hmm. I mean, I certainly they have they have memory, they understand what's past. I think they see into the future somewhat because, you know, they're sensitive if we don't do things when we're supposed to do things, even if they've been munching on you know nibbling on food or getting some food rewards. Around five o'clock, you know, they start getting antsy because that's when dinner is coming. So there's some (laughs) kind of internal clock or something that there. But could they learn grammatical structures to say yesterday I did this and tomorrow should we do this? It's not clear. You know, would they understand things like the passive, understand the difference between the dog bit the cat versus the dog was bitten by the cat? I mean, kids have to be several years old, you know, 
there was one study, and I don't know if that's true of today's children, but years ago there was one study that said they had to be about five years old <laughs> to be able to understand that. So, you know, those are the complexities that I, I really don't, you know, don't expect that we would get. On, on my way here, I, I had this image in mind of uh, Ash's conformity experiment uh, being uh, tested on parrots, the one where uh, they take five humans, four of which are confederates, ask them to say which line is longer or like which shape is bigger. Oh. Uh, and they are like really clear questions. Uh, and the surprising result is that the four confederates say, say the obviously wrong thing. Then the fifth person, in many instances, actually says, oh. also says the, uh, the wrong thing. Well, the closest thing was, you know, sometimes Alex would give Griffin the wrong answer. Mm -hmm. And we generally didn't continue, but it would have been interesting to see if Griffin then gave, you know, the wrong answer. You know, I'd be very curious. But, you know, to if we told, that. if the thing was green and Alex said yellow, we just looked at him and went, <laughs> no, quiet. <laughs> so, but the interesting thing was because of things like that. What after Alex died, we found out that Griffin knew which labels fit into the color bin. Mm -hmm. But because Alex had you know told him so many times, you know, this is green, this is yellow, this stuff. So he would just give us a color label because he didn't have to think about the one-to-one -one correspondence about the object and the color initially, because. Mm -hmm. You know, Alex just said green, and then he'd say green. What do you make of the intent to deceive? <laughs> well, I don't know how many times Alex intended to deceive, or, you know, <laughs> just was... parents' intent. Yeah, or just basically wasn't paying attention himself and just spouted out something. Hmm. I mean, the other issue that's interesting is they see in the ultraviolet. So sometimes the colors that we see aren't really what they see, and depending on the hmm. angle at which he was looking and the way the light was coming down on it. So like orange, it could have looked more red-like to him or more yellow-like. Hmm. And we have to be really careful of things like that in the lab because they do make those kinds of mistakes. That's interesting how much they have to learn to be yeah. able to, yeah. <laughs> to communicate I mean, it's, it's things, it. you know, there, was, there were early studies where um, with pigeons, before people understood that these birds saw in the ultraviolet, and they didn't understand why, you know, if you ask them, you know, is this thing green and is this thing green? The bird, essentially, you know, not by asking him to label it, but you know, through an operant thing, is this green and this green? The birds would say yes, and then they'd say, but are they identical? And the birds would say no. Hmm. And the point was, the bird would see one thing is like a grass, you know, to us it was grass green and one it was forest green, but to them it was like blue and green or something, or the vice versa rather. It was the other hmm. way around. The things to us it was blue and green. And to them, it was like brass green and forest green. So if you ask them, is it both green? They'd say, yeah. But if you say it's the same color, no. But they didn't realize that what was blue to us was sort of brass green to the bird because of the way they break up their That's color perception. Even if you believe, I don't know, if this is how incredible this is now, but the idea that different languages break up colors slightly differently. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing. I mean, this, this is a big psychological thing. I don't, you know, I'm not aware of all the papers on this, but um, it'd be interesting to test to see if the way the different you know, languages, if the people have if genetically have somewhat different cones in some ways, or they're just trained that, you know, yeah. this is what you, how you split things up. Closer to, I guess, dividing phoneme space. I mean, I don't know. I wish I knew more about that, and someday maybe. 
So more on animal cognition. Uh, so what do you think is the relationship of language and higher cognition? I think it's connected. And I don't want to say language, okay? Let's call it symbolic representation. Okay. Because that's safer. Um, <laughs> no, really. I mean, what yeah. these birds have is definitely symbolic representation. Whether, mm -hmm. you know, as we've been talking, language, questionable. But symbolic representation, they know that these abstract symbols, these speech things, represent things in the world, and they understand the one-to-one -one correlation. And I do believe from some of the studies we've done that it really makes a difference. So we did this test on basically numerical competence, and it's complicated to explain, but essentially be Alex, because he had the symbolic representation of his numbers, he knew that the sound six meant exactly six things, not approximately six. But exactly six. So if you gave him a tray with five, seven, and eight things on it, and you said, what color six? He'd say none. Mm -hmm. He wouldn't say five or seven, the color of the five thing or the seven thing. He'd say none. There's no six things. He knew that exactly. And if you look at other animals or pre-linguistic children, they have this approximate number system. So they'll have a peak around six if you mm -hmm. ask them about things. But sometimes they'll, you know, answer with respect to something that's five or something that's seven when you ask about six, because it's only an approximate number system. And because he had the symbols, okay, he could do this one-to-one -one correspondence. And we think that's really important. Mm. And it gives you a different way of kind of splitting up the world. So I think it really is an important aspect of cognitive processing. Do you think that using both an approximate developmental sense and an ultimate evolutionary sense, like that using a tool like symbolic representation or in suggesting human evolution, like having the hands available, mm. bootstraps, higher cognition? I think it's a, you know, a cyclic process mm -hmm. that you get a, the symbolism helps you understand things and then you can further make projections and, and cycle through. I mean, I think that's what really basically happened in our evolutionary processes that we started we had started getting symbols for certain things and then I mean when you think about it some of the most complex things we do as humans is higher math and that's all symbolic abilities but it's it's definitely you need the cognitive abilities to understand what all these symbols mean and you need to these symbols to theorize about more complicated issues than you could otherwise so it's an interdigitated type of thing the animals that are considered to be um, most intelligent, dolphins, uh, great apes, um, elephants perhaps, Would you, um, do you have a sense of how they compare uh, to African great parrots? Well, they, the parrots have done so far every task that the chimps and the mm. dolphins have done. Mm. Okay, the uh, parrots have done. Okay, so um, we haven't, the only thing we haven't gotten is mirror self-recognition, and I think part of it is because parrots don't care if there's gunk on their face. <laughs> I mean, literally, if you see them after they've eaten their breakfast, and they've got, you know, this, you know, yam on their beaks and all that stuff, and it takes them a while to start, well, I guess it's a little bit uncomfortable. I think it's a proprioceptive feel mm -hmm. that it, they don't like the feel of it, but I don't think they care. <laughs> so that's an issue, but no, seriously. And there's a paper that just came out um, in November showing that the the density and the number of neurons in the parrot and corvid brain for the size of that brain is the equivalent to that of a much larger weight primate. Oh, that's interesting. So that's why they're able to do the kinds of things that the apes 
can do because the density of the neurons mm -hmm. and the, the packing, the, t the number and density of the neurons. So some people interested in animal suffering and sort of the, the moral weight of animals are suggesting that sort of the logarithm of the neural mass of, of animals could roughly capture our intuitions. And uh, this is obviously a very controversial uh, metric. Do you, uh, do you think uh, neural mass captures something important about uh, animal cognitive abilities, or uh, do you know of any well, better Well, it's, it's not just this neural mass. That's what I'm saying, is this paper. You need to, yeah. to look this up. So it's, it's, um, it's density as well? It's, it's the, yeah. I mean, there is an issue about the relative size and mass of the cortical area compared to the rest of the brain. Mm -hmm. It's not just the size of the brain, mm -hmm. because your brain, you know, scales up with just massive mm -hmm. body mass. So you've got to look at this cor relative cortical size compared mm -hmm. to the rest of the brain. But this is a paper that looked not just the relative cortical size, but this density mm -hmm. of neurons and the connectivity of these neurons and things like that. That was, it was just an amazing thing showing how it, when you look at it, you know, in terms of what's able to be packed into that little walnut-sized brain, you know, it basically lets it function the same way as a chimpanzee brain. So, what's our understanding of why parrots have evolved this kind, this of, kind of smart kind of yeah. brain? Um, the theory, okay, there's a lot of theories now, and you know, people like Richard Wrangham are playing around with all these things, like you know, the evolution of fire allowed our mm -hmm. brains, human brains, to grow, and the idea of there's one paper that just came out. It's like, no, it's sugars, okay, <laughs> allowed this to grow, and then there's the you know the Jolly and Humphrey, kind of the social brain hypothesis. But, mm -hmm. you know, essentially when you look at the overall comparison, let's, or let's not use the early hominins because of the, you know, fire and all that kind of thing, but let's just look at the apes and the parrots. They live in a very similar environment in Africa in terms of evolution and ecology, okay? The, the evolutionary pressures and the eco social and ecological pressures on them were very, very similar. They're both what we call case-selected species. So they have, you know, long childhood. They have few offspring at a time. They have very long childhoods um, before they are able to reproduce and, and basically become adults. And, and so there's this long learning period. They forage, the parrots forage 60 kilometers a day. So they have to have mm. this cognitive map like that of the apes of this large area. Okay, where's where's good? Where are the nest halls? And where's the place where we're gonna you know safe to stay at night? The roost areas, and where are these different trees that different have things? And where are the savans with the you know greens that we need to eat? And where are the nuts and things like that? So they have to keep all this, and they have to update it all the time, because you know if they went to there to eat all the fruit. Well, there's not going to be that much ripe fruit there today. So they got to remember, okay, not that tree, but we have to go over to this other area and get this. In terms of their social groupings, we my students did some field work. Um, they were chased by machete-wielding poachers. We kind of decided that was the end of that. Um, but, you know, and we couldn't figure out if what kinds of dominance hierarchies there were in the wild. But in the lab, there are definite dominance hierarchies. So I would think that even in the wild there's some dominance hierarchies. I mean, you know, nest holes are very valuable. Maybe not every bird can have a nest hole. Maybe it's the dominant pair that have this. But the point is, 
dominance again you have to know your dominance hierarchy if sam beat up on joe and joe beat up on me i don't want to go near sam you know i have to be able to infer from watching joe and sam you know what the deal is i have to be able to infer this. i have to have cognitive abilities and i have to have the cognitive abilities to keep updating this information all the time because hey you know eventually sam's going to get too old not be able to be top whatever and then it's not even necessarily that Joe's going to take over because Bill and Bob can, you know, have a coalition and basically throw Joe over. You know, so you have to keep all this stuff. When you're in a fission-fusion society like the birds are, um, it's not just knowing, you know, this little group, but something about this larger group that you roost with at night. I mean, there's roosts of about 100 birds on average. They break off into small groups. Do, is it the same small group every day? We don't know. But the point is they gather in different times during the day in other groups. So you're in the savannah and some bird's up there and an alarm calls. You need to know something about that bird. Do you trust the fact that this bird is calling? Is that a good sentinel <laughs> that, you know, I should give up eating because there really is a hawk there? Or is this just, you know, he's up there screaming because he thinks if he gets rid of me, he can come down and, you know, grab the nuts or something. So... You need all this information. And, you know, when you think about evolutionary pressures, that selection is there. And they're long-lived. I mean, that's the point. They're so long-lived compared to the other, other creatures. I was really struck by that, that. So 50, 60 years is the average? In, in captivity. I mean, one of my, my Dutch colleague has a 99-year-old great wow. parrot in his veterinary practice. And they know it's 99 years old because of all the family members that, you know, it's been passed down through. <laughs> um you know, that's it's an exception. And he says, the bird's not in really great shape at 99 years old. But, you know, it is a 99-year-old bird. So, I mean, they live so long and they have to... So, again, over the course of their lives, they're updating all this information about the forest. They're updating information about the members of the flock coming in and out. And hatchlings are coming in and other birds are, you know, going off to other... Dispersing to other groups. They've got to keep all that. They They mate for life. But, you know, in the wild life, I mean, you say a bird lives 60 years, but if a cock picks it off, right. you know, it's got to make it a new mate. Mm -hmm. So it's got to develop a whole new duet with that mate mm -hmm. to be able to, you know, find the right. mate when right. it's off in the forest. So so do we know which way the causality goes? Is it, uh, so uh, is it because parrots are long-lived, they, they need to have all these information in mind or uh, because there are complex social uh, social relationships there uh, or is it a feedback loop it's yeah. it's a, probably a feedback loop mm -hmm. you know all these different pressures exerting on one another mm -hmm. again to is there any kind of cooperative care we don't know okay we don't know mm -hmm. the the hypothesis that people want to look at is if these birds are actually reproducing each year, which we don't know for sure, in Africa anyway. Um, we know some of those parakeets in uh, the Amazon do reproduce every year, but we don't know about the grays. Could it be that the younger grays, okay, go to live with a bunch of older but still not mature birds? So it's like the, you know, sort of the teenage ones would be teaching the younger ones while the parents could re-nest. Mm -hmm. Because if you look at a gray parrot that's about a year old, it's still clumsy. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, you know, it, if anything that we see in the lab is what is in the 
while it still is having trouble figuring out what it should and should not be eating in a year. <laughs> um, and it's still exploring a lot. And so, you know, if the parents don't nest every year, then yes, it could stay with its parents and keep learning. But if the parents do nest every year, then it's conceivable that the birds will go off to these juvenile groups. The birds, they don't get sexually mature until they're about four or five years old. And so, you know, five years old, this bird, four or five years old, that then the bird really knows what's you know, how to survive in the wild, but it's not yet ready to nest. So the fact that it could be spending its time, if not act, when I say teaching, I don't necessarily actively mean teaching, but at least being the demonstrators for what should be done, you know, that could be, but we just don't know yet. And then for, for old age, if older parrots are contributing to rearing yeah, younger yeah, parrots, parrots or yeah, continuing we, to affect their reproductive success, right, you know, something, yeah, we don't know. We don't know. Yeah. I mean, we don't know. In fact, um, there's so little information, in fact, on how long they will reproduce. Um, we don't know stuff like that. We know in captivity, it's hard to say. You could look at a captive bird and say, well, by this stage, it's you know no longer breeding. But when you think of it in captivity, captive breeders for you know often force two clutches a year. Um, we don't. We think we know appropriate diets. But a bird, it's one thing to keep a bird healthy if it's just, you know, there. But if it's reproducing, mm-hmm. all the things that it would need for reproductive health, I mean, for the females to be able to produce the eggs, it takes a lot of, of mm-hmm. nutrients. You know, maybe the reason that they don't last so long and they don't reproduce, you know, they stop reproducing at some stage, is just that we don't know what we should be feeding them, mm-hmm. that we're pushing too much reproduction on them. We just don't know these things. We have a friend who is perhaps your biggest fan. His name is also Alex. So he, um, <laughs> one of his profile pictures is Alex. And anyway, so um, Alex the parent. But, um, he said it's his impression that Alex's fluid intelligence did not reduce as he got older, but then he died in what was maybe middle age. And right. I just wondered what you thought about that. No, he was still learning. He was still learning things. I mean, he was, you know, he was actively learning. He was, um, we were doing you know, a bunch of different experiments when he passed away. Um, he was actually literally learning the color brown. Um, he was asking us, like he was playing with cardboard on his cage and asking us, you know, what color, things like that, and making, you know, say asking us many times so he'd hear us repeat it many times. Um, so, no, he was, you know, but he was he was fairly young when he passed, so... It'd be interesting, I don't know, if you do have longer-lived parrots, um, uh, to know if that, if, uh, I mean, that could give yeah. insight into life history in general, if they right. seem to perform at the same level. Across. Right, and when they're 55 is when they're, yeah, I don't know. Griffin's only 22, so. Do you have a good sense of how special parrots are within uh, the realm of birds? Uh, are they... Compared to chickens, are they much more intelligent, uh, or is that hard to know? Do we just like well, anthropomorphize them better yeah, because they can they talk? Like... It's hard to say. I mean, my colleague Giorgio Vallotteguera is doing all this work with n- newborn chicks, and you know he he can't give them symbolic representation mm. per se. Um, but you know, if you would ask people forty years ago how smart is a chicken, they'd say you know. Mm, not much. Mm-hmm. And yet he's been doing some really interesting things. So he's shown an approximate number system in these chicks mm. where they can uh, distinguish like three things from four things as mm. hatchlings do by imprinting. So it's really hard to say. What we 
kind of know from just a bunch of, you know, studies that we've been working on throughout the system that the parrots and the crows, corvids, not just crows, but corvids meaning crows, jackdaws, ravens, okay, they seem to do better on these cognitive tasks. They seem to be able to grasp more complicated systems than, say, pigeons and chickens. But over the last, you know, 40 years, when people begin to realize, gee, birds are not stupid, the number of types of tasks that people have been designing for chickens and pigeons have gotten more complex. And when you design the experiments appropriately and take into account what they, you know, their abilities, you know, they start doing much more interesting things than they used to. So, again, it's really hard to say. You've talked about what animals can tell us about artificial intelligence and okay. ways that domestication might have affected chicken intelligence yeah. compared to wild birds. Well, yeah, I mean, that is a big issue because when you think about it in a sort of joking type way, all right, basically the really smart ones were able to, you know, fly the coop. And the ones you got sort of left there were the ones that thought, yeah, you know, just getting some food here is fine. And, you know, I think domestication, at least in chickens, it is not true of all animals, but domestication in chickens, I think, dumbed them down in that sense. Hmm. But if you look at, you know, domestication in dogs, it's not entirely clear. It's a different type of intelligence in dogs and wolves. And my colleagues in Vienna, are I mean, I don't want to talk too much about it because I haven't read all their papers, but they're really working on that and seeing if you've got dogs and wolves that have been initially raised in similar situations so that they're parent-raised but they are human-habituated, and then, they, then they're going to start doing all these different comparative tasks. Because one of the problems is you have to have the dogs that are human, you know, wolves that are human habituated mm -hmm. to be able to do these kinds of tests with them to see what's genetic and what's not and, and test those things out. And then one, you know, you're not domesticating them by basically having them habituated to humans if they're parent-raised, mm -hmm. things like that. So, I mean, you, you know, you're pushing things a little bit, but you're not really domesticating them. So we're trying to figure that out. I mean, certainly... Certainly, there's certain selections and certain things like a chicken, you know, you're selecting for a creature that's going to just, you know, stay in there and just eat and produce eggs and not do much else. Because the wild, you know, wild jungle fowl are pretty sharp creatures. In general, on the artificial intelligence question... Um... There's been a lot of popular talk about debunked theories of human mind, like the bicameral mind, where there's a speaker and a listener, and because yeah. Westworld, the show, you know, the the uh, the artificial intelligences, that's okay. how their mind works. Is there any like quirky idea about cognition that you hope might have a second life in artificial intelligence research? Well, I mean, what's interesting is when I was at the media lab, the idea of using the birds as models for intelligent learning systems. The idea, I mean, one of the holy grails of, you know, basically artificial intelligence is to have it learn by example and not have mm -hmm. to program every single thing. And so that, you know, that would be an interesting thing. I mean, I wasn't at the media lab long enough for us to really work on that. But, you know, that would be a kind of a cool thing if we could look more at the kinds of things that we do about the social, I mean, social interaction and learning the birds and, you know, if there was some way to transfer that in artificial intelligence. I mean, people are certainly getting to some of this stuff, but, you know, it's still 
just a little bit. I mean, certainly we're doing things where in terms of Bayesian learning mm -hmm. is on, getting in that direction where mm -hmm. you're learning from experience, at least. There's some question I'm really curious about. Uh, do you love uh, the that bird sketch by Monty Python? Oh, it's very cute. It's very cute. I wouldn't say I love, but it's very cute. I mean, it's very cute. And one time I had somebody come in, literally come into the lab and sit there with watching Alex, and she just went through this entire, she just, <laughs> you know, did both, you know, parts of the thing. <laughs> and he's just looking at her like. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The <laughs> um, Norwegian blue. Yeah, yeah. At least this season of the podcast is going to be the ideological Turing test, which is, uh, and the idea is like, like a Turing test for um, machine intelligence. Uh, can you represent yourself as a member of the other side by giving a good argument? So, we want to ask you a hard question, which is, what's the best argument uh, against the idea that animals are really intelligent? So, what would be the best case they could make? Well, I mean, the issue is there are still so many types of tasks. For example, you know, people have just begun, and it's, I haven't read the article, I need to read it, but the Sally Ann task, okay, do you know what the Sally Ann task is on theory of mind? So essentially, we're in a room, and there's Sally and there's Ann, and there's a basket, and there's a box, and we put candies in a basket, and then Sally leaps. And then Anne puts the, you know, I put the candy in the, the box and I ask Anne, where do you think Sally's going to look when she comes back? Now, if Anne is under three years old, she points to the box. If she's about over four, she points to the basket and she giggles and says, oh, she's going to be so confused. She's mm -hmm. going to think it's there, but it's not. Mm -hmm. Somewhere between three and four, kids make this switch. Okay. There's only been one study, and I, again, I haven't read it, on kind of looking times with chimpanzees that suggest they might have this ability, okay? The issue in trying to get it in animals is that we're looking at developmentally in humans, okay? So if you do it with an older bird or an older chimp, well, they have it or they don't, but it it's very hard to argue that it's really there and not that it's some that there's alternative explanations for what's going on okay and so this is one of these you know holy grails of, of studies and I said that that there is a study on chimps with looking times I haven't yet read it read the paper I should have read it I just haven't had the time um, but those are the kinds of things that are really you know are really tough to design a good clean experiment and to convince people that it's, you know, real when you've got it. So, you know, the question is how do these, I mean, when, when Alex did the, the nun transfer from same different to number and basically figured out how to manipulate me into asking the question he wanted me to ask, that was the closest thing that I could say we've got to theory of mind. And he just kept pushing, you know, it's as though, as though, and I'm not saying he did this, but it's, I know if I keep pushing this, I'm going to get her to do this because this is what she's done in the past, you know, type of the thing. You know, that was the closest thing we've ever gotten to theory of mind. But that's, that's one of these things that, you know, how much are they projecting? How much are they figuring out? If I do this, she's going to do this. And if I do this, she's going to do this. And therefore I should do that. So I should, you know. Thank you so much, Amy. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Okay, good luck with this. Yes. Good luck with seeking the Holy Grail.
Thanks for listening. Now enjoy our theme song, written and performed by Chris Baker. Thank you.